0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to our special three part series on the Security 2025 report. Uh, In this episode, we are once again joined by our panel to speak about the need to increase the role of security professionals in corporate governance, as well as the importance of improving the industry, the security industry, that is, security industry's image. With us today, we have Brian DeCares, CEO of the Australian Security Industry Association Limited. We are also joined by Dr. Gavril Schneider, Senior Researcher and Director at the Australian Security Research Institute. We have with us Nicholas Martin, Chair of the Forum of Australian Security Executives, and Cameron Smith, Director of Security, Licensing and Enforcement Directorate with the New South Wales Police. Another of the recommendations in the report was to uh, improve and increase the role of security professionals in corporate governance. What exactly do you mean by that and why was that a key finding?
1: When you, when you look at the security industry, depends on what part of the industry you're in and you think that's it. So if I'm in guarding, people think, well, a security guard is all there is. But when we look at those domains across cyber, uh, physical, et cetera, uh, security professionals are in demand globally. And one of the challenges we've got is this convergence of managing threat and risk. So even when you look, for example, at information security professionals, there's a physical security component that comes into that. So part of the challenge now is if you look at any global risk data, cybersecurity is up there on any corporate risk register. And yet physical security or protective security is kind of separated and might be grouped with uh, facilities management or somewhere else. So part of the challenge is if we want to have a robust industry that protects assets, people, information, operations, etc., and enhances national security through doing that, we have to have a uniform approach that puts this at the top of the food chain for organizations when they look at managing risk
0: okay and so from the point of view of corporate governance i mean this is a question that we immediately think of nicholas and and his group of you know professional corporate security managers how do you see them fitting into this
1: so i i think the most and i'm sure nick will back me up on this you know most chief security officers are steering security risk within their organization already. Okay, It's just not necessarily uniform. And you know, if you look at, for example, people who are part of FACE, some have the title chief security officer, some might be security director, or they're the most senior security person in their organization. And without the ability to inform a business, and organization, so whether it's a government department or not, of the risk exposures they have, it's exceptionally hard to manage that risk. So if we look at the cascading role security industry plays, which is really, for the most part, risk management, right? You put a guard down to manage a risk. You put up a CCTV camera. You install cybersecurity solutions to manage virtual risk. Uh, Without that becoming an embedded, uh, integrated role of the way organizations manage governance, we're always going to be reactive. Uh, And, you know, the challenge we've got is realistically, we've been very lucky in Australia. It's a comparatively very safe place to live. But threats like terrorism and cybersecurity don't really care about the saltwater insulation piece, and it would be terrible to have you know some sort of massive incident happen that might have been preventable, had organisations actually reached a level of maturity with this stuff. And this is not far-fetched. You know, the the federal government's protective security policy framework mandates that every federal government agency must have a chief security officer. Uh, so you know what we're trying to do. Is get alignment here around the top of the food chain, not just the bottom of the food chain. And realistically, yeah. the first part of the discussion around licensing might have leaned a little bit more to the front line, but it doesn't help that we just address the front line issues, but we're not addressing the bigger role that security risk professionals have to play in our economy.
0: So, Nicholas, then obviously with the organizations that you represent through phase, you know most of those organizations are going to have similarities and some of them will have vast differences from your point of view do you see it as achievable to achieve some sort of alignment across the way the security or chief security officers within those organizations run the security and and manage their role or do you think that's perhaps you know a, a challenge that's maybe a bridge too far
2: as it currently stands i think it'd be very difficult to get alignment and purely because businesses some of them have a very high risk tolerance and some of them have a very low risk tolerance. And and so you'll find that they'll resource around that. Um, Also, the the personality of a chief security officer and their background can either be a positive for the program um, and they can actually get that program established in the border risk framework of a business. Or if they're very inexperienced, they actually might drag it backwards and and actually impact the perception of security in the organisation. If you look at, once again, what the government's trying to do with the Critical Infrastructure Act is that they're trying to say that all businesses aren't the same. Some are really doing the right thing, resourcing it appropriately and then building it into the way that they work to protect the business and then also have the ability to respond. And other organisations are flat out just ignoring it, like not even paying any attention to it. And to Gav's point, we'll only deal with it when the event occurs. So when the event occurs, They'll look at it, they'll respond to it, and then that's when they'll start resourcing it so it doesn't happen again. Um, So I guess what the government's trying to do is say there's a minimum standard that you need to be at. We'll assess you at that. Um, And if you're not there, we'll want to see a program that you put in place to deal with it. So across phase, if if I look at the 50 members, it's quite fascinating, actually. Some businesses have decided that we need to converge this. And I'd um, one of Australia's biggest banks is well ahead of everyone else in converging what they call security. So they're, they're bringing in aspects of fraud, cyber security, risk management, audit, general risk, uh, physical security, and they're bringing that in, in under one chief security officer because they recognise that running those different elements of security in parallel... Um, is actually not good for the business and it's highly inefficient. So the idea that bringing them together, sharing the information, building that broader risk picture when it comes to security is the way to go. And then you've got other organisations where some chief security officers really are only managing what you would consider um, frontline operations, security guards, managing access points, um, access control systems, CCTV. So it's a pretty big spread just within those 50 people. And some of them are representing very, very big organizations, but very, very low resourcing.
0: So, Gav, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? or
1: I think we, we mustn't confuse standardization with consistency. Right. I don't think there's any expectation ever that you would have a cookie-cutter approach to the way organizations should manage any risk, never mind security risk. But I think it's important for us to recognize that we want to evolve the security sector into a profession. And that's one of those challenges that we identified in the report. So if there's not a clear pathway where somebody might start off as a guard and one day be a chief security officer and a clear understanding of what that means, it's hard to professionalize the industry. So I think what we're trying to look at is there's incredible value that managing security risk effectively can add to any organisation. And if it's not part of a broader scale governance framework from the top down, then at best, you've got uh, a challenge in the way you manage emerging risk.
0: So you mentioned professionalisation of the industry as part of the response, which is a great segue to my next question, because in the report, you talk about as one of the key findings, the need to professionalize the image of the industry. So Brian, perhaps I'll throw this to you for your first thoughts, and then we can come back to Gavin and Cameron. But you know, professionalization of the industry's image is something that the industry has been struggling with for quite some time, especially recently on the back of issues around hotel quarantine breaches and all sorts of things, which in reality had in the end, little to do with private security, but it's still something that the industry wore I mean, from Asial's point of view, how do we move towards professionalizing the image of the industry? Because, as we all know, hope is not a strategy.
3: Yeah, it's it's a it's a big a big issue. Uh, I think reframing the public perception of what security is is a, is is a major challenge, because a lot of people have a, a probably a dated perception of of what a security uh, person does. Uh, and it is, when they actually dig deep, deep into what the industry does, it's a lot broader and a lot more sophisticated than a lot of them actually would understand. So that's probably one of the biggest challenges. And, uh, and the challenge for us is to get uh, recognition of the positive contribution the industry makes. And I think um, the recent hotel quarantine uh, uh, experience probably illustrates that where, you know, what happened in Victoria has obviously swamped the the media airways, but you, you look in uh, other states where these private security has been used extensively in hotel quarantine, but they scarcely warrant a mention, even though there's thousands of them turning up across the country, uh, playing a frontline role throughout the, the pandemic. So, uh, it is a challenge. Uh, we we have uh, made efforts to try and cut through that uh, the media, but it is it is a it's a tough one. The, the the media has a particular outlook on the industry, and we tend to get. Uh, clobbered when there's the bad news, but we rarely get recognized for the, the, the many positive contributions the industry makes, not just in the protective security, but across the whole range of electronic security, cybersecurity, physical security. So that is something that we will, again, continue to try and to get some cut through. I think we're getting a little bit, but it's going to take a while to, to ref- reframe that perception of what, a, what security actually does uh, as part of the economy. Yeah, certainly, certainly, an issue for the industry is certainly is to attract uh, more skilled and upskill its the personnel that are already in there. I mean, the the competency requirements to to get a license are really entry level requirements. So it really is something that the industry needs to focus on is to upskill its personnel uh, across the board. And I think part of that is is educating clients to understand what good looks like uh, and actually then reward good providers uh, with, you know, obviously with a, with a remuneration that can actually attract quality people into the industry. And obviously the companies have to make a, a profit. It all has to work out for everybody, but we need to, to attract better people uh, to provide better people.
0: So Cameron, I'm going to throw to you here because I know that in the past you have sat on the board of things like the Australian Security Medals Foundation, which is really designed to sort of try and identify and highlight some of the great work that security personnel do. We have things like the Outstanding Security Performance Awards. We have the uh, International Security Officers Day, which is now sort of all of these things are being driven by ASIL. but Cameron, you know, from a regulator's point of view, how do we go about improving the profile and the image of the security market?
4: Well, I remember when the Australian Securities Metals Foundations um, started, and you and I were both involved uh, in early days there, uh, there was some good media reporting around uh, metal recipients. Um, That seemed to drop off a little bit. Uh, It's true that the media only seems to want to report on um, the bad stuff. I mean, every time I'm interviewed, and I was recently, you know, I say to the journals that the good in the industry far outweighs the bad um, but those lines never get picked up um, so every opportunity that ASIO has and others um, to get those good news stories into the media um, even if it you know depends on sponsored content um, will, will help the other the other trouble is of course that um, the media reporting and the public focus and perception of the industry just focuses on the manpower sector. Um, There's so much great work happening in the technical sector that no one even knows about or associates with the security industry. So um, it's need to find a way for the industry to get those messages across um, as well.
0: So, Nicholas, perhaps let me ask you a question then, because I imagine in my experience the group of people that you represent the the security or chief security officers within some of the you know the top 50 organizations across australia is the term security a little bit too broad and nebulous because often when we talk about security we uh, the public have this perception of guards standing out the front of banks guys out the front of nightclubs and you talk to senior security managers within large organizations and they say oh no i'm 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 not security but the reality is they are. Is it a language problem? Do we need to try and do more around differentiation within the security industry? Do we change what we refer to ground operators as, you know, maybe concierges or um, protective officers, And then we have senior security managers. What are your thoughts around this?
2: No, I quite agree. But I, I think when you have probably the largest part of the security cohort, um, being the security guards standing at the front of a building, that's naturally going to be people's perception. They don't deal with me when I do a risk assessment. They don't deal with me when I do a threat assessment. You know, they they don't they're not involved in executive protection and visiting an executive's home. Uh, there's there's they're not with the cyber team when they're locked up in their cyber sock doing work, um, and that's the challenge. Is uh, it, it is a big broad industry. And I think you're right about the naming conventions, and Gav alluded to it. Cyber teams are now using protective security inside cyber language. They've dropped the whole cyber thing in most cases. Like you'll hear a SOC, and that's just a security operations center. Now, is that one that's looking at access control and camera systems, or is that one that's working on cyber defense? So, I think it actually is one. Of, it's a good point, John, because. I think everyone knows that industry as a whole does a great job, whether it's at national security. So you hear this security term thrown around a lot. National security is all, well, it's all very mysterious and happens in Canberra behind closed doors. And it must be must be amazing what goes on there, but we don't really know what happens. And then you've got security guards and then you've got security technicians, but a lot of the time they're electricians installing security systems. So I, I think... Yes, understanding how this all fits together, and I sort of alluded to it before, corporates are starting to say there's no point in slicing and dicing security. It is part of a broader resilience function, and that language is starting to play through now, resilience, Um, and then that's an outcome that we're trying to achieve through many mechanisms, identification of threat, responding to risks, day-to-day operations, and then that whole event that we'd never planned for, how do we respond to that, whether it's through crisis, emergency, business continuity? So I think... It's probably the, the security as a term will probably get swept up into resilience and be an aspect of a resilience program, not necessarily be a standout from that.
0: Brian, from from your point of view as the association or the representative of the industry, you know, how do you see that we, we tackle this challenge? Because... Again, security is such a broad and nebulous term that as part of this piece around trying to um, improve the image of the industry, I know something ASIIL and the report have focused on in in recent years is trying to get people to understand that there is a career path in security and that security is a viable career coming out of school, going into university. Um, But when you talk to people about would you like a career in security, again, they're not thinking about I necessarily want to go and do my bachelor's of security science at edith Cowan university they're thinking no i don't want to protect the front of walley's um so do we need to change the language around this i mean what is ASIAL's
3: plan for this i think when it comes to the career side i think the industry does need to do a little bit more in terms of pl- plotting out what are the career pathways for someone entering the industry i think what we tend to find is when someone actually does enter the industry they tend to stay a while there's a lot of long, long-term long industry participants. So I think we've got to do a better sell job. We're actually up against a lot of other industries who are all uh, chasing the same sort of talent. And I think the current environment is going to be particularly challenging as we come out of the series of COVID lockdowns. Everybody's looking for good security personnel. Everyone's looking for, for staff. And we will need to play a, a more proactive role to actually paint a picture of what, what the roles are available within the within the industry for all different skill levels, um, and actually try and uh, give people a way to go forward because people want to progress in their careers typically, uh, and we have to give them a a way forward. And I think in recent years people have fallen into security. We need to really look at uh, security as a profession and as a career that people want to get into. Not it's not the it's not the career or last uh, last resort. It's one that people want to get into, and we have to do a Probably a better sell sell of what the uh, what the industry has to offer.
0: Gav, let me ask you to chime in on this because I know in writing the report you looked a lot at the paramedics and the way that they had made the transition from a vocation to a profession. And I know that your predecessor, Athol Yates, had done a lot of work with the Australian Institute of Engineers and how they had sort of transformed into a profession. How do you see this working? Because it is a very long bow when you look at the industry from the person who wants to check handbags at the front of the MCG to Nicholas Martin and his cohort who are managing security for organisations with a turnover in the hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a big gap. Thanks, John. So I think you
1: know, we, we did reference the paramedic sector just as an example. But think about that broad scope right from first aiders all the way through to, you know, advanced trauma life support paramedics. And, you know, once we start being able to get people to understand how broad our industry actually is and how much uh, diversity there is, we can start actually going, well, here's a pathway for continuous professional development for the people who want it. And this is not something that we have to make up. You know, there are many other countries that do this. You know, the UK is just one good example of how, you know, it, it's a common pathway where people will start off in guarding or electronic security or any other frontline security function, do a bachelor's degree. Um, many cases, people will leave armed forces or policing careers and transition into private security and, you know, be crisis management risk consultants, international security consultants, etc. So it's really interesting because I guess I started researching the Australian security industry in 2008. And... It was fascinating to kind of see, even back then, that there's this predisposition to a kind of nightclub bouncer that, you know, bullies people and doesn't let them into nightclubs. And then when you actually look at the industry, it's so different to what people perceive it to actually be. And even back then, uh, I interviewed a whole bunch of crowd controllers, and most of them were, you know, getting punched in the head and not doing anything back because they were scared of losing their license. So... You know, one of the challenges we've got, and I think it's important for us to recognize this is, and I think Brian said it really well, we're all jostling for attention. And to a degree, the security industry in Australia has not evolved the way it could for numerous reasons. One, Australia is comparatively safe. The threats have changed around us, which is quite different. Two, we've got, you know, a state-based regulatory system, which we already addressed and discussed which makes it tougher for some sort of national career pathing. And the other thing that we've got to take into account is it's diversified. So somebody who starts off as a a guard, for example, doesn't see themselves transitioning to being, you know, a cybersecurity professional or uh, potentially, you know, being a security executive in an organization. And that's, I think, part of what we try to highlight in the report, that those pathways actually do exist. They're just not well communicated nor are they understood. And that's part of the challenge we've got. I think the other side too, and just listening to Cameron and Brian earlier, whether we like it or not, I don't know what the media fixation is with bad news, Okay, particularly when it comes to the security industry. But if we, if we took an overall look at the responsiveness, agility and adaptability just of our security frontline role players, and I'm talking about electronic security and man guarding, both of those adapted, pivoted, and did incredible things to manage COVID. You know, we should be celebrating what we do. But uh, I guess the old saying, good news doesn't sell as well as bad news. So, you know, every time we make a mistake, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to overcome. Yep. But, you know, and, and this probably switches back to what we started this discussion with. It's everyone's responsibility to work on changing the perception of the security industry, not just the regulator, not just our executives like Nick, not just the association, And we want people to be proud to work in any sort of structure that contributes to national safety and security. So we've got a bit of work to do. And, uh, you know, I think that's an interesting challenge and it would be one that maybe in five years time, we could sit back and go, well, this is where we were now. This is where we are. And that would be awesome.
0: Yeah. I think unfortunately it, it is potentially only going to get harder moving forward because we have seen a dynamic shift over the last 10 years in the way the media, the broadstream media, works. Um, we know that newspapers no longer make money out of selling classifieds and ads. They now make money out of selling online advertising. And as a result of that, the greater the number of clicks, the greater the number of eyeballs, the greater their revenue. And so what we used to have in the way of uh, purveyors of news, we now just have in the way of purveyors of rage porn because rage is what makes people click on things. And so that's just the way it works. Unfortunately, if it, uh, what's the old journalism saying? If it bleeds, it leads. So it's an unfortunate reality of the battle that we're dealing with. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us and thank you to Brian, Gav, Nicholas and Cameron for their time. Be sure to join us once again for the final part in our uh, Three part series on the Security 2025 report when we discuss issues around expanding public private partnerships and how all of the goals touched on in this report and this series might be achieved again if you would like more podcasts like this one you can find them at blurberry spotify google uh, google play itunes and all the other great areas where podcasts are found and also if you want to download a copy of the report you can find it at www.asial.com.au and we look forward to seeing you on the final and third part of this series